Nomai Haremai, Nāpātaka Korero, Auckland Libraries in association with Ancestry and Ancestry Pro Genealogists present a special selection of talks honouring New Zealand's military history. So New Zealand wars were a series of conflicts that uh, profoundly shaped the course and direction of our nation's history. Um, fought between the Crown and various groups of Māori between 1845 and 1872, these wars, they touched life throughout 19th century New Zealand, even in regions that were spared actual fighting. And you can find physical remnants and reminders of these conflicts throughout the country, um, whether that's in central Auckland or Wellington, uh, Dunedin even, uh, or in more rural locations like Te Poriri, which is near Tūrangi, um, or Te Awamutu. And a lot of New Zealanders, Māori and Pākehā, can probably trace uh, descent from at least one ancestor who fought in these wars. Some people have ancestors who fought on both sides. There are a lot of Māori who have uh, descent from, from um, soldiers in the, the British Army or, or colonial regiments as well. And I'd argue that the wars are an integral part of the New Zealand story, but we haven't always cared to remember or acknowledge them in that way. Um, and for much of the period since 1872, the end of the main sequence of the wars, uh, Pākehā really have clung to um, a highly romanticised version of these wars. They kind of emphasise these as uh, chivalrous and, and noble and heroic conflicts. But this kind of version was just devoid of the more disturbing reality of what actually took place. And when that was no longer tenable, that, that kind of uh, mythical version of the wars, Pākehā simply chose to ignore them altogether, like don't, don't talk about the wars. Um, but I, I'd argue that this is our story, it's our history. It happened here in this place quite recently in historical terms, and it had profound consequences for what the nation was and what it would become. And so that's why it's really important to engage with this history today. So that's the why should we care part. To say that the wars are fought between Māori and the Crown is slightly misleading because actually Māori fought on both sides in these conflicts. Um, sometimes particular Māori... Um, switch sides, fighting for the crown one moment and against it um, later on, or, or vice versa. And that wasn't because they were being inconsistent or they were confused, um, but really it pointed to the fact that local and tribal interests were very much at the front of their thinking when it came to determining allegiances. And those could shift quite quickly depending on the context. As far as the crown was concerned, you were either for or against it. Neutrality wasn't really an option. And so in desperate circumstances, entire communities had to make decisions about, you know, what was in their best interests. And if you were in the path of an invading British army, you couldn't, you, you didn't get the choice to say, well, sit this one out, thanks. So these, these, are, these are communities that are making uh, very quick decisions about what's in the best interests of their people. Now, on the Crown side, British Imperial troops did the bulk of the fighting before 1865. And Charlotte will talk more about this later. Um, for the rank-and-file soldier, life in the British Army in the mid-19th century was pretty awful. The pay was terrible, living conditions were squalid, alcoholism was rife, and the discipline was incredibly harsh as well, including brutal public floggings that often then left grown men who witnessed them in tears. So it really wasn't a fun place to be. And, you know, desertion was, was understandably quite widespread. And so I talked about how loyalist Māori uh, had their own reasons for fighting. A lot of those who joined the British Army did as well. Um, they weren't necessarily uh, in the British Army, you know, because they, they subscribed to the ideals of the British Empire. And in fact, we know from, from um, 
the wonderful work that Charlotte and, and Rebecca have done with the Soldiers of Empire project, that about two thirds of the rank and file soldiers were actually Irish. And as somebody of Irish Catholic ancestry myself, I wondered, what did those men think of fighting a war of conquest and disposition on behalf of the British Empire, given that Ireland was the original blueprint for British imperialism? So they're here on the other side of the world doing to Māori what had, what had been done to their own people. And did they draw those parallels? Could they see those connections? The short answer is a lot of those men were illiterate, so they weren't leaving behind letters and diaries recounting their experiences. But there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that they did become increasingly disillusioned um, with the wars. And they asked themselves, why should they be tasked with robbing Māori of their lands? Why shouldn't the settlers in New Zealand be doing their own dirty work themselves? A lot of, a lot, and, you know, by the mid-1860s, a lot of British taxpayers were asking this very same question themselves. Why should we be funding this war? Shouldn't the settlers in New Zealand be paying for their, their own, you know, their own war of conquest? And, in fact, it wasn't just the rank-and-file troops, you know, even their commander, uh, General Duncan Cameron, by the end of the Waikato War, had become thoroughly disillusioned um, with these conflicts and had a major falling out with Governor Gray. And by the time he left in 1865, it, that, those two went on speaking terms even. So a lot of the troops um, actually sought their discharge in New Zealand. I mean, if you'd come to New Zealand to fight in the wars, you'd escape the Irish famine. New Zealand was probably quite an attractive place to settle in afterwards, so a huge number stayed behind. And um, as I said before, there, there are lots of people who can trace their ancestry to, to people who fought in the wars. So the, the army leaves in 1870. The 18th Royal Irish Regiment is the final regiment to leave in February 1870. But a huge number of former soldiers remain behind as settlers. And some, as I said, actually end up marrying Māori women from the very same iwi that they've been fighting against. So the, the, the withdrawal of the British troops begins in 1866 uh, and is finished in 1870. After that date, colonial troops, uh, including conscripted militia, volunteers, military settlers, specialist units in the armed constabulary, along with their Māori allies, um, were solely responsible for the conduct of the war on the Crown side. And the wars really start to enter a harsher and I, I'd suggest more racially tense phase in the late 1860s. Now, the Māori communities that they fought against, they didn't have standing armies. They were basically a civilian population who were fighting in defence of their, their homes and their lands, um, often using weapons that dated back decades to the musket wars of the 1820s and 1830s, uh, often without artillery or, or adequate ammunition. You know, there are, there, there are stories of Māori using peach stones and, and bits of tin and, and whatever they can find um, as ammunition. The Crown had armour-plated steamers and Māori had wooden canoes, um, and most of these conflicts were outnumbered four to one. Um, really, it should have been no contest. And some people have pointed out to me that under these circumstances, you know, mere survival was, was in some ways miraculous, just surviving this onslaught. In the mid-19th century, Britain is the world's leading superpower, up, up against a, a tiny Indigenous population on the other side of the globe who are fighting for their lives. And to make matters even worse, Māori uh, throughout these conflicts are, are, are really fighting in conflicts that are, that are provoked or begun by the Crown in most instances. So talking briefly about the, the causes of the conflict now, um, land sovereignty and these lurking Victorian assumptions of racial dominance are all really important factors in the wars. And I think a, an overarching theme of all of, this all of these conflicts um, is a tension between increasing Crown assertions of unbridled sovereignty 
um, and Māori expectations of continuing chiefly authority. Um, at, at their core, a lot of these conflicts came boiled down to the same question. Who, whose will was going to prevail? Who was in charge in this country? Who was running it? And that was bigger than a question of land ownership. Land is an important factor in these wars, but there were these other issues as well. And they went to the heart of, Ma of how Māori and Pākehā would, would live together in this country and how they'd share it. Would Māori share the fate of other Indigenous peoples around the globe being reduced to a state of subservience um, and perhaps even facing the prospect of extinction or you know, on the other hand, this, this idea of New Zealand exceptionalism, the treaty as this enlightened humanitarian experiment, you know, that, that, that the Crown promised to scrupulously respect Māori land rights and chiefly authority and so on. Would, would that aspect of the treaty be upheld? And the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840, in most parts of the country, didn't change anything at all, really. It, you know, you, Crown authority prevailed in European townships like Auckland and Wellington and so on, but outside of the Māori communities continued to govern their own affairs as they always had, as they'd been promised in the treaty. And it's really only during the main sequence of the wars in the 1860s that this question of which version of the treaty, the Crown's one that says we're in charge now, or the Māori one that says we were promised partnership and ongoing chiefly authority over, over our own affairs, it's only really in the 1860s that, that you get a, a decision around which of those versions of the treaty relationship will prevail. And before then, an uh, important factor is that, um, you know, really from the, the moment the settlers arrive in New Zealand, they start agitating for what's called responsible government, basically the right to manage their own affairs. And there's a new constitution that's introduced in 1846 that provides for a settler parliament or for a parliament to be established. And the right to, to participate in that parliament is based on an English uh, language literacy test. This is at a time when Māori have incredible rates of literacy, but mostly in Te Māori. So the effect of that, that constitution would have been to exclude them from the right to participate in, in the parliament um, structures. Governor Gray says, if we do this, there'll be a war in this country. Māori will not accept this. Because in the, the mid-1840s, Māori are all-powerful, demographically dominant, um, you know, and the settler population is tiny. Six years later, there's a new constitution, the 1852 New Zealand Constitution Act. Again, that sets up parliament, that it sets up provincial assemblies and provincial governments as well. This time it doesn't have an English language literature test, which is sort of a, you know, almost like the, the Jim Crow kind of uh, thing that happening much earlier in New Zealand. Instead, the right to vote and participate in that parliament is based on owning property of a certain amount. But the crucial factor is the property has to be the property has to be owned according to European forms of land tenure. You have to have a piece of paper saying you're the legal owner of this land. Most Māori land is held under customary tenure at this time. Māori don't have a piece of paper saying they're the owners of that land. So the effect of that constitution is, is again to dis disenfranchise Māori. And Parliament is established in 1854. There are no Māori who participate in that. There are very, very few Māori men who are eligible to even vote for that parliament. And this is at a time in the, in the early 1850s, again, Māori are still, there are more Māori in the country than there are settlers. Crucially, by 1858, settler numbers reach parity with Māori for the first time. And by 1860, Māori are outnumbered um, in their own country for the first time ever. And I think that date, it's, it's not coincidental that the main sequence of the wars begins in 1860, because settlers finally, uh, feel that they're in a position to impose their authority on Māori. You know, I talked before about um, 
you know, these ideas of a imagined Victorian racial hierarchy, which placed Pākehā at the apex of that. And Māori was supposed to be inferior. These settlers travel halfway around the globe and find that Māori are basically running the country. They dominate the economy demographically, they're dominant militarily, and, and in so many other ways. And that wasn't what these settlers had signed up to. They're supposed to be in charge, but the reality is quite different. So there's a disjunction there, and that 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 really great for a lot of Pākehā. So the main sequence of wars begins in 1860, but before then, the, 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 the first series of wars begins in Northland in March 1845, when Ngāpui chief Honeheke famously chops down the, the flagstaff at Kononanaka, uh, today, Russell, for the fourth time. And, and that flagstaff, flying the, the Union Jack, is seen as a symbol of British, uh, British sovereignty and all that's gone, gone wrong since 1840. Honeheke was actually the first Rangatira um, to sign the treaty in 1840, but he quickly becomes disillusioned. He feels betrayed by the relationship that they have with the Crown. So he, he, join, he joins forces with Kawati, uh, an incredible military genius. First really big conflict takes place at a highway in July 1845. And it's here that we see the first of what James Bellops described as a modern Māori power system. And that has, those power have anti-artillery bunkers. Basically they're designed to neutralise all of the benefits that the British have, including the heavy weaponry. And so the British under Despard bombard the Parano Highway for about a week, I think. They hear nothing from inside and they assume everybody must be dead because their overwhelming uh, firepower has worked. Despard orders an assault on the par, and one of his mighty allies, Tumti Wakanini, pleads with him not to go ahead with this. And Despard says that if he wants, if he wants advice from a savage, he'll, you know, he'll ask him for it. So he ignores Tumti Wakanini's advice. 300 British troops charge the par within the space of 10 minutes, one third of them are cut down, killed or wounded. Uh, you know, incredible. And the really interesting thing is 20 years later at Gate Par, the British are again doing this, assuming that their overwhelming artillery will prevail, charging the power and suffering huge, huge casualties as a result. So there's this unwillingness to learn from the history of the wars themselves. Anyway, the Northern War ends at Ruapekapeka in January 1846, really indecisively. So the Crown doesn't, doesn't really impose its authority over the North after 1846. What it does really is turn its back on, on that district um, for a long time. There are further conflicts in the Wellington Whanganui regions in the mid-1840s, and a big factor in these is a, a bungled New Zealand Company land transactions, pre-1840 land transactions, where New Zealand Company claim to have purchased huge areas of land, and Māori are, are basically um, evicted from those lands at gunpoint. And so that there, are, there are these conflicts in the Wellington region in the mid-1840s. What followed, though, is a long period of peace uh, from the mid-1840s through to 1860. Through this time, Māori devote their energies um, to trade and commerce, producing a large proportion of New Zealand's export income and um, a large proportion of the government's tax revenue as well, while also feeding settler populations in towns like Auckland and Wellington. And, you know, settlers in those townships through this period, one Auckland newspaper said in, I think, 1844, that the settlers there would have starved if it wasn't for Māori bringing produce to the town every week. So that was just how reliant Pākehā were on Māori through this period. And so Māori are incredibly industrious through this period. But there are tensions, you know, because of the, 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 the Constitution Act in 1852 that introduces a settler parliament that's overwhelmingly hostile to Māori interests. Māori are excluded from that. What can they do about this situation? They've been promised partnership. 
that have been promised this year in the governance of this country, and they find themselves excluded from that. And so that this long period of peace was shattered in March 1860 when the Crown attacks Māori and Taranaki, who are protesting the sale of their lands at Waitara with only minority um, support amongst the owners. And what the Te Atiawa people at Waitara and uh, Taranaki do is they send out Kuya, our elderly woman, to put out the surveyors' pegs to make it clear that they protest um, this transaction, but they want to do it in a, in a non-violent way. The, the government responds by declaring martial law, and they, they describe putting out survey pegs as an act of rebellion, and March 1860, they attack Te Atiawa. That war again ends inconclusively in March 1861, uh, partly uh, because Te Atiawa and other Taranaki Māori receive assistance from um, the Waikato and Ngāti Maniapoto tribes, and that, that's really crucial because Waikato is, is a hugely powerful um, iwi through this period. So that aid, um, along with trumped up rumours that, that Waikato is, is planning to attack the settlement of Auckland and massacre its residents, are used to justify an invasion of Waikato in July 1863. Waikato had been home since 1858 to the first Māori king. Uh, so the king tone of the Māori king movement is established as one of the responses to the fact that Māori find themselves excluded from the settler parliament. So if Pākehā are not going to allow Māori into these institutions of governance, a lot of rangatira get together and think, well, why don't we, why don't we set up something for ourselves as a better way um, to, to work together? They talk about the kingitanga being for Māori, not against Pākehā. The, the last thing they see, the last thing they think is that this will be regarded as some kind of sign or, or indication of rebellious intentions or anything like that. In fact, throughout this period, King Tanga leaders have very strong affection for the person of Queen Victoria, who they see themselves in a treaty relationship with since 1840. But nevertheless, Governor Gray sees the King Tanga as a threat to Crown sovereignty, and he's determined to destroy the King Tanga. And so the, the invasion begins in July 1863, and this is what Winnemu Tamihana called the Great War for New Zealand, which is the title of my really big book on Waikato War um, that came out in 2016. It begins in July 1863. Um, first really big conflict takes place at Rangiriri in November of that year, when the people inside the par are controversially seized and taken prisoner after they fly a white flag of truce from inside the par. Months later, in February 1864, at Rangiafia, people in that settlement are deliberately torched to death inside their whare, inside their hut. The attack on Rangiafia is especially contentious and a source of huge bitterness and mamai or pain, because Rangiafia was supposed to be a place of sanctuary for women, children, and elderly men. And the, the, the Kingitanga men of fighting age were waiting elsewhere at a place called Paturangi for a British attack that never came. The troops snuck around Paturangi and attacked the settlement where there were only women, children, children and old men living, basically. And so for Māori, that wasn't regarded as an act of war. It was regarded as an act of murder, and people like Wiremi Tamihana, a remarkable rangatira, a leader of the Kingitanga, were hugely angered by what took place at Rangiafia. End of the following month, 31st of March 1864, you get the, the final battle of the Waikato War at Arako. And here, there are over 300 people inside the par. They ran out of food and water and ammunition. The British assume they have them surrounded that they're trapped and they assume that victory is inevitable. The people inside the par after three days flee on foot. Um, they find a narrow gap in, in, the, in the British lines around them. 
and they come out walking calmly at first and as they get close to the British lines that they literally run for their lives on foot and they're hunted down by cavalry and huge numbers are killed. Um, over half of the people inside the par are killed. So out of the 300 or so people in the par, 150 are killed, including documented cases of female prisoners banned by troops. So this is, Anarcho is often part of this, a huge part of the myth-making around the New Zealand wars. It's seen as this chivalrous and noble conflict. Rewe's last stand after Rewe Maniapoto, the, the leading rangatira there. But there was nothing noble or chivalrous or glorious about this. It was brutal and bloody and awful. And it was also far from, far from an end of the fighting as well. So you have indiscriminate sweeping um, crown actions that see huge numbers of Māori attacked and their lands seized and confiscated without provocation. And that gives rise to new resistance efforts, basically. So you get renewed it, renewed Anunnaki in 1863. You have further fighting in the Bay of Islands on the East Coast um, and elsewhere across the central island um, in, the, in the late 1860s. And you see the emergence of two remarkable military and religious leaders, Tukawaru and Taranaki of Koti on the East Coast. Late in 1868, following a series of spectacular crown defeats at Tunutua Tamanu and Taranaki and elsewhere, the colony is something of an existential crisis, and it responds at times with acts of great savagery, including the extrajudicial execution of up to 128 Māori prisoners at a place called Natapa near Gisborne in January 1869. They're lined up against the side of a cliff and shot, basically. Uh, none of them are tried or, or, or convicted of any crimes. On the other side of the island, in November 1868, a much smaller incident, but an incredibly brutal one took place at Hanley's Warshed, where a group of children are attacked by, by colonial troops led by John Bryce, who later, later becomes a native minister and a leading politician. So Tatukawaru is regarded as a huge threat in Taranaki. There even fears that Wellington is under threat, but eventually his force disperses. On the other side of the island, Tukoti spends the next four years um, eluding Crown forces. Eventually, um, he takes refuge in the King Country, which is the area south of Waikato where Māori survivors spend the next 20 years in a district that's still really outside the Crown's authority, at least until the 1880s. So the main sequence of the wars ends in 1872. November 1881, of course, the settlement of Parihaka is attacked, but the armed constabulary are greeted by skipping, um, singing and dancing children. You know, whether that's even part of the sequence of wars is unclear. You know, is, is it war if only one side has guns and violent intentions? So the fighting, the fighting ended in 1972, but the legacy of the wars continues to be felt today in a whole lot of ways. And I'd argue that awareness and knowledge of the historical context is really necessary to understand today. We can't make sense of our world today without knowing this history and where we've come from. One example of that is, I think, any discussion of contemporary Māori poverty that fails to acknowledge the long history of invasion and dispossession is missing a huge part of the story. And that leaves some people blaming, blaming Māori themselves for their current day predicament. Do they, are they even aware that in the 1850s, Māori were the leading drivers in the Zealand economy? And all of that is taken away virtually overnight in the 1860s. That's not something you recover from quickly or easily at all. And there are lots of other, you know, aspects of this that you can draw as well. Um, for example, New Zealand Wars is a big part of the reason why Auckland is our dominant city today, why there are more people living in the North Island than the South Island, and lots of other things. So the wars had a major influence on the shape and direction of New Zealand history, and I'd argue more so than World War One or World War Two. These were transformative events in our nation's history. 
they're also a big deal in terms of British imperial history. There are a huge number of British troops here, as, as Charlotte can, can talk to me further later. Uh, and the Waikato War, 1863-64, is also the first overseas war that Australian troops fought in. So some have argued this is really a, you know, a precursor to the Anzac tradition. And in terms of this contest between the two different versions of the treaty, on one hand, Māori expectations of partnership, on the other, Crown expectations of primacy, it's really only, only in the 1860s that, that that issue is resolved in a way. So what you see is that it's really the Pākehā version of that prevails, and that sees the treaty basically thrown out the window for the next century or more. Pākehā are no longer required to, required to or willing to treat Māori as their equals, and having assumed control of the country in, a, in accordance with their expectations of racial dominance, they're unwilling to share, share power with Māori communities. It's exercised solely for the exclusive benefit of Pākehā interests. And you can see that in a couple of ways. So the Waikato War finishes in 1864. Within a year of that, you get the native land court established. And that's been described as an engine of destruction for Māori societies. Because what it does is individualise titles to Māori lands. It makes it much easier for Pākehā to get their hands on those lands. Two years later, you get the native school system set up. And that has an explicitly assimilationist agenda. Its goal is to turn Māori into brown Europeans. So one strips Māori of their land and the of their land and the other of their language. And we still live with the consequences today in a lot of ways. It's, and but neither of those institutions would have been possible um, before the New Zealand wars. The Crown didn't feel powerful enough to impose its will in that way. So another um, thing that flows from the wars is that, that I talk about in my book is casualty rates. And when I um, researched the Waikato War uh, for my book in 2016, I concluded there that the casualty rates were probably higher per capita than those suffered by New Zealand troops during World War One. And for the new book, I thought, let's look at another district and, and see whether that stacks up as well. So I looked at the Gisborne district, Tūrāna, and there, in brief, I, I found the casualty rate for Māori in the space of four years, between 1865 and 1869, um, probably 20%, one in five Māori in that district were killed, which is just massive, unbelievable. Um, you compare that with World War One, which is traditionally considered the greatest bloodbath in New Zealand history. In World War I, 1.7% of the country's population was killed on a per capita basis. So in the Gisborne district, it was easily more than 10 times that. And that, that's not an isolated example. You could apply that elsewhere and you'd probably get not, not dissimilar results. Also, as I said before, there was a massive economic impact with the destruction of the Māori economy and with land confiscation. And conf land confiscations weren't an afterthought. They were an integral part of the invasion plans as well. So these are all things that directly fly from the wars. Now, Just to, just to finish up, given that these wars were so important, you know, why why is it the Pākehā, it seems, have gone out of their way to ignore this history and, and to pretend it never happened? I think one thing is that the history of wars fought here makes many people feel uncomfortable because it's seen as a source of division. And compare that with Anzac Day when thousands and thousands of New Zealanders rally around the flag on Anzac Day. And that's seen as a source of patriotic pride to remember those who fell in foreign wars. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't mark Anzac Day, that's, that's an important um, uh, thing to acknowledge, but we should also be big enough to acknowledge the conflicts that took place right here as well.
they're also part of our story. We should be big enough as a nation to own that history, uh, warts and all. And I'd suggest that understanding mutual respect and dialogue is actually a basis for bringing us together rather than tearing us apart. We need to have these conversations about our history, partly as a way of healing. And that doesn't require feelings of guilt or shame. We just need to be big enough and honest enough to, to open up to this history. And really, young people have been leading the way on this with, the, for example, the Otto College students who petitioned to have the uh, National Guard commemoration for the New Zealand Wars after a, a site visit to uh, Oraku and Rangiafia, which were both sites about 20 minutes at the most from their school, and they didn't learn anything about that history. So they organised a petition, the National Day of Commemoration, and of course, more recently, we've had the announcement about teaching us on history in all schools, and now the hard part is working out how we do that. But there are other things we need to do as well, and one of them is actually look after the sites, look after the battle sites, because often the way we mark these is we run roads through the middle of them, and sometimes we name them after the British commanders responsible for invading the district. Cameron Road, I mean, Arterial Road in, in Tauranga is, is a notable example that runs through the middle of Gate Pa, Pukihinehina. So look after the sites and ensure the history is taught. But I also think adults need an opportunity to, to learn this history as well, because so many of us didn't learn anything about this history at school. So we're, we're kind of catching up on it. We need resources to engage with this history as well, whether that's books or websites, documentaries, apps. There, there are loads of ways that we can engage with this history. So I think it's time to break the intergenerational cycle of ignorance around this history and to take ownership of it, the good and the bad, like grown-ups. Because what, what we choose to remember speaks to our priorities as a nation. And this is just about being brave enough to own our history and, you know, what's and all, as, as I say. So I'll, I'll leave it there and leave time for any questions. Thank you. We have a few questions. Judy from Whangarei has asked, why haven't we got memorials to these wars? I may reword that a bit as why don't we know about where those memorials are Vincent if you can if you've got some answers about memorials yeah well yeah I'm, I'm fascinated by memorials too and really that, that probably gives me an opportunity to speak a little bit more about how Pakeha have engaged with this history historically because when I started researching this I seen that we'd always forgotten it and always ignored it because that, that had been the case since I was a child but then I look back at like um in 1914, it was the 50th anniversary of Arako, probably the most famous battle of the New Zealand Wars. And what happened there is a huge crowd turned up to to mark that event. And there were mostly Pākehā. There were very few Māori there. One of the reasons for that is, is that the Pākehā organisers of this 50th anniversary event called it a celebration. Māori weren't going to celebrate an event where their ancestors had been killed, their lands taken, and, and you know, generations condemned to lives of poverty. So that they, they weren't part of that. But there's, there's this elaborate Pākehā myth-making around this history. And there are actually a lot of memorials put up through this period from the 1910s through the 1920s. Um, I think it's the Victoria League, um, Edith Statham, are, are very prominent in, in the move to have these monuments erected. But they are part of this elaborate myth-making around the wars. And these myths are really grounded on the idea that Māori and Pākehā fought these chivalrous and heroic battles and forced this mutual respect in battle and then settled down to become the best of friends. They lived happily ever after in, the, in this mythical version of the wars. And so the New Zealand wars were seen as, as these are really the genesis for this idea that, that Pākehā lived in the country with the greatest race relations in the world. 
And that, that notion kind of prevails for a lot of the 20th century. It's even there in the 1960s when you get the centenary of a lot of these conflicts. It's by about the 1970s that um, Pākehā can't get away with celebrating these wars anymore. And th there's, there's not a new narrative that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable. And so we, we do enter this period of silence. It's don't talk about these wars. That the device that they make us feel uncomfortable. We don't know how to respond to this history. We don't know how to engage with it. And I think that the, the challenge now is is to find ways to speak to that history and to be upfront about it. And I think we are doing that. We are starting to do that um, in the last few years. So that is encouraging. And I think you know I think yeah, um, it's a good question about the monuments and memorials because we probably need to reflect on. The symbols that we have today, are they appropriate? Do they need further contextualization? Do they need, for example, information panels that explain, well, what this monument, um, you know, what was carved in this monument in 1914 is no longer an accurate representation of that history from today's perspective. Here's what we think actually happened. Or do we need new monuments and memorials? The other thing as well is, um, you know, talking about that symbolism, do, do we need to rethink um, you know all of the all of the the Cameron roads around the country, or the Wontemski streets, and all, all of those things. You know, imagine if you're a, a you know Māori person living in a community that was subject to invasion, and you're living on one of these streets named after one of the invaders. How would that make you feel? It's it's kind of like rubbing it in on a daily basis. So, you know, if we engage with you know in conversations around those things, I think that's a really healthy thing as well to to, to think about how we can. Um, reflect that that history in a way today that is more inclusive and thoughtful. Uh, Jen from the UK wanted to know about the best online primary sources that she could get her students. She's teaching at the University of Newcastle, Vincent, um, mm. to engage with on the New Zealand wars. Can you recommend any particular primary sources online? Um, I can't, I'm not sure whether there's, there's a single particular repository of primary sources, but um, I mean, Papers Pass is obviously an incredibly um, useful one. As part of that, you've also got the appendices, the journals of the House of Representatives and various other things. Uh, British Parliamentary Papers are also online now. So a lot of those things are very useful. Uh, in fact, Trove, because I think through the Waikato War, there were various Australian newspaper correspondents who were embedded with the troops as well. So it's really interesting to get their perspective on these things. So there is a growing number of, of resources. I'm, I, one of the things I'm, my, my next book project is, is compiling a reader of primary sources of these wars. So that, that's something I'm, I'm hoping to do partly as a, um, a resource that can be used in schools and universities, um, but also because I think it's really interesting to get um, those, those perspectives from, you know, those who were there to witness this history as well. A mm. um, couple of people have mentioned Trove as well. The Waitangi Tribunal Report, Ricky's suggesting, Catherine Mills is suggesting Digital New Zealand. Uh, I'd like to also mention the Māori Nui paper who are held at the University of Waikato. Um, they, they're, they're well worth um, reading the English translations of. And Karen, and I'm going to have to apologise for my poor Maori pronunciation. She says, thank you for today. One incident that seems to crop up, Rangiawiha? Rangiawiha. and the church. What can be factually unsubstantiated? Read that event. Uh, yeah, well, that's interesting because that's... Um that's one that's often discussed. There are a huge number of um, eyewitness accounts in there. And 
a number of those who took part in the Crown side. Some of them say, um, do a Māori inside a whare, which might have been a whare karakia, so a, a church or a place of worship. Um, some of them say um, that that whare, that hut, caught fire accidentally. Um, and um, others say it was done deliberately. Now, thinking through that history, how, how do you reconcile these completely different histories? Well, it seems to me that if you, um, if you didn't see somebody setting the whare alight, you might assume that it was an accident. But on the other hand, why would you implicate your own side by saying, yes, we did it deliberately, we set fire to it, which a number of eyewitnesses do. So there's very strong, compelling evidence here. Those, those aren't the sorts of things that you just make up. Um, so I think that that evidence is overwhelming. It's not just one source either. There are multiple sources that confirm um, that the fire was deliberately lit. One elderly man attempted to come out of the whare after it was set alight um, with, his, with his hands in the air surrendering. He was shot dead. The other occupants of that hut um, remained inside and they were, they were torched to death inside the whare. Um, and as I said earlier, the, the fact that British troops were attacking Rangiafia in the first place was already a source of enormous mamai um, and pain for Māori because it wasn't a place that was occupied by fighting men. It was occupied by their women and their children and their elderly men. And actually what had happened is at the earlier battle at Rangiviri, um, Māori had been criticised for bringing their women and children into the fighting power. Governor Gray wrote to them and said, send them somewhere else to a place of safety. Don't bring them into your fighting power. So they did that, and, and that place is attacked. Um, which ironically is the probably a large part of the reason why women and children are inside the par at Arako again at the end of March. Um, the crowd could not be trusted not to attract, attack women and children, so they were in, in the par there, and, and, and significant numbers are killed as a result of that as well. Okay, so the next question is from Brendan. Has said, uh, Vincent, was there any fighting in the South Island? I don't believe so, and if not, why not? Um, well, there was the um, the event that took place at, at Wido in June 1843. It used to be called a massacre, and then it was called an affray, and I think some people call it an incident now. Um, I, I would just call it a conflict or whatever. But there, again, that was... Um, a bungled New Zealand Company transaction. Um, New Zealand Company established the settlement of Nelson and those settlers were promised, um, I think 150 acres of rural land each along with their suburban sections and their town sections. The company discovered or, or thought they didn't have enough rural lands for them. So where are they gonna plant their settlers? So they discovered the Wido Plains, massive area of, of, of valuable lands. And so they start surveying and cutting up these lands for the settlers. The only problem is that Māori said that we hadn't sold these lands to his own company. Um, and Te Raupaha, Te Rangihaiata, they, they attempt to plead with the Crown uh, to intervene to inquire into this injustice. Why are settlers surveying these lands and so on? Um, that's ignored. Um, a conflict takes place there. There are um, about 22 Pākehā killed and four Māori. But it isn't the start of, of a, a series of ongoing conflicts. It's a one-off um, incident, really. I think um, James Balich called it the first and last settler, settler commando party in, in New Zealand history because settlers realised after that that they weren't powerful enough to um, to be doing things like that. I mean, basically, the, the settlers in Nelson rounded up a, 
a group of I think 50 special constables and went down to Waido to to, um, to teach Te Raupaha and Te Rangihayata a lesson and um, they failed to do that. Uh, as to why there went further conflicts in the South Island, I think um, that partly goes to um, there, there were a variety of ways in which the Crown extended its authority over the country after 1840 um, and one of them was military through New Zealand wars. Another was through um, massive crown land purchasing and um, what Balich again called swamping, where huge numbers of settlers are planted on those lands and Maori are demographically um, outnumbered in a quick space of time. And over large, over large parts of the South Island that happens, you have um, the Camp or Canterbury purchase um, in the late 1840s about 20 million acres, a third, nearly a third of New Zealand, um, for a poultry price. Um, and basically in time, the, the Māori in those districts are, are overwhelmed by a flood of settlers that come in and that they become marginalised. And so military confrontations aren't, aren't a realistic prospect in those situations. Vincent. Thank you for sharing just a small piece of your wealth of knowledge. I'm interested to know more about how we remember, or how we don't, civilian input into the wars, specifically militia around the west coast, like the Kai Iwi Cavalry, who one could argue were not governed by the rules of war, if there were any, mm. and, are orchestrated, and orchestrated some gruesome attacks along the west coast indiscriminately to Māori. Yeah, well, yeah, so the Kai, it was the Kai Iwi um, cavalry, cavalry who were responsible for the, the attack on Hanley's warshed that, that I mentioned earlier. And there, um, you had a group of Māori children who were out hunting pigs, chasing pigs. Um, the Kai Iwi cavalry um, from the Whanganui district um, set off after them. Um, even after they realised that they were small children, about maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, and attacked those children, and two of them were killed, and, and actually in ways that, is, that are too brutal and graphic to actually even describe here, because it would be too upsetting for people. Mm. Um, and there's much debate about whether the commander of the Kaiwi cavalry, John Bryce, how much he knew of what took place there. Um, and about 20 years later, um, an Australian journalist and historian called George Rusden uh, wrote a history of New Zealand, uh, three-volume work, um, and in it he he said that at at um, Hanley's Wolfshed, Bryce had had gleefully and with ease cut down women and children, and um, John Bryce sued Rusden for for defamation. It went to the courts in London, um, and Rusden was found guilty of defamation, uh, and this really ruined him. One of the reasons. Um, the courts found against Rusden was he had said women and children were cut down and it was only children, there were no women there. So <laughs> um, this this was a big part of the reason why, why Rusden lost that case. But, you know, in terms of the role of, of um, ordinary settlers in these wars, that it, as I said before, they, they take on an, um, an increasingly important role in the late 1860s. And this is at a time when the wars enter a darker phase as well. Um, and the British government kind of um, turns its back on what's happening in New Zealand. Um, and many Māori continue to, to plead to the British government to intervene because they see 
well, they assume that, that Queen Victoria still, you know, they signed a treaty with her and if only she knew what was taking place to her Māori subjects, she would intervene to bring justice to them because many Māori had visited London, some had actually had audiences with the Queen and she told them this. She, she told those Māori rangatira she loved her Māori subjects, she would do anything for them. And so they kind of assumed that that, that wasn't just mere words, that that meant something because Queen Victoria was considered a rangatira and her word was her bond. And um, so there's this ongoing attempt to plead to the uh, plead to the British government to intervene because, um, you know, they, it was assumed that they had some responsibility for this, and especially Queen Victoria, the person of Queen Victoria, because the treaty was entered with her as a rangatira. And, uh, you know, that's still happening in the 20th century as well. So there was this long attempt to, to seek justice for what happened. And I, th I think, um, you know, so by the late 1860s, these wars um, enter a different phase and, you know, ordinary Pākehā settlers in New Zealand have a much bigger share of responsibility for these wars. And so, you know, you can't sort of just say, well, this is something that the British Army or, 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 or whatever did. There, there was a huge role for, for settlers in New Zealand as well. Uh, I think Jenny summarised up something that is, is, is very distinctly human. Why does the pendulum swing from one extreme to, to another? Is it possible to ever have a rounded point of view on history? Um, we're not there good bad actions on both sides. I'd like to hear stories that representative of both sides and in all capacities. I'd just say it's probably human nature. But Vincent, do you have a short summary before I hand to Shona so she can introduce Charlotte? Yeah, um, well, I, I, I mean, I agree with that, that we, I mean, this is, um, what, I'm, what I'm attempting to do is not to demonise all Pākehā settlers in the mid-19th century. In fact, one of the things I think that comes through my work is that for a number of those who were planted as military settlers on these lands, um, you know, they, they, um, they had been promised great things, and it doesn't really eventuate. Um, they, they were supposed to spend three years on these plots of land so that they get legal title to it. Would all be great that have these wonderful careers as farmers, but it doesn't happen. Most of them sell their lands for a pittance, and generally to a handful of Auckland uh, speculators, people who were in government in 1863, like Frederick Whitaker and Thomas Russell. So, a handful of Pakeha do very well out of these wars, but for a, a lot of um, ordinary Pākehā, that they don't. So, I mean, those complexities are things that I try and, and, you know, explain in my book as well, that it's not simply, as you know, this is not about heroes and villains or demonising um, entire groups of people either as well. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website.